Welcome to an Asia Rising lecture recording. The event that you're about to hear is a conversation with Gareth Evans, former Australian Foreign Minister during the Hawke and Keating government and current Chancellor of the Australian National University. He's in conversation with Professor Nick Beasley, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, at the Melbourne launch of his book, Incorrigible Optimist. And he spoke about his career in politics, the rise of China in the current world, and his views on the current Australian political climate. And it was held on the 15th of November 2017 at the State Library of Victoria. What I aim to do in this um, first part of this evening's um, uh, event is to to sort of talk through some of the issues in the book and particularly to go back to the time when Gareth was Foreign Minister and talk a little bit about the challenges of, of foreign policy making as a bit of a, both a reflection on what's in the book and a bit of a taster as to what, what you might get were you to purchase it, um, but also I think as a, as a sort of step into the contemporary and to see how things, where there are lines of similarity and how things have changed over the time since uh, Gareth was, was Foreign Minister. Um, and also the book does, is very revealing and certainly... You know, his time in foreign, as foreign minister takes us back to a time in world politics of considerably, considerably greater optimism than we have today. And, and it was a time actually when I was having my first sort of glimmers of um, university engagement with this stuff and made the um, fateful uh, decision, I use that term loosely, to, to follow the academic study of international <coughs> politics because of this sense of transformation and change. And so I think there's a lot there that's worth, worth unpacking. And then we'll get to the contemporary... Uh, and, but also leave plenty of time for you to, to pitch questions uh, at Gareth. But I want to start with the, question, with, with the issue of, of making foreign policy from an Australian point of view and, and your experiences of, as foreign minister. And there's an interesting point in the book where Des Ball, the late great uh, ANU strategic studies scholar, I think one of Australia's greatest ever uh, contributors to international relations, said to you after a, a speech you gave at the ANU where, where you were attempting to sort of lay out the intellectual groundwork of, of being foreign minister. You said, all, all very well, all very... When are you gonna, but when are you going to say something interesting? <laughs> and I think that the point that you're getting at is that you felt yeah. the need to develop what you describe in the book as a kind of model for the conduct of Australian mm. foreign policy yeah. with which you felt intellectually comfortable. What was that model? Well, it was a hell of an exciting time to be alive as foreign minister. As I begin the first chapter about foreign policy saying, you know, bliss was at that dawn to be alive and to be foreign minister was very heaven. The end of the Cold War, the opening up of the new sense of possibility about international relations generally. And there was a great temptation just to sort of, as Stephen Laycock, you know, said, jump up on your horse and gallop madly off in all directions. And foreign policy making and foreign policy conduct is always a, a slightly or significantly reactive business. I mean, as Harold Macmillan once said, what were his biggest challenges in government? And he famously replied, events, dear boy, events. And there is that sense of just coping with the next thing that's coming at you. But what I wanted to do, and what I tried to do in my first months as foreign minister, was put this new environment we found ourselves in into some sort of shape in my own mind and to get the best out of it in terms of... Australia making a really significant impact on the wider world and in the process advancing, our, of course, our own interests because that's what foreign policy is all about. So rather than leaping into big statements about the future of the alliance relationship or what we ought to do about emerging uh, trends in Asia and um, so on and so forth and saying something about Japan or whoever, I, uh, I thought it was important to articulate a, an approach to foreign policy making which did, in fact, guide me through the whole... Uh, eight, as I was in the job, 
And basically, the, the starting point was national interest, but a wider view of what constitutes the national interest and has been normal in Australian foreign policy. The traditional way of thinking about national interest is in terms of uh, geopolitical strategic interests, security interests on the one hand, and economic prosperity, trade and investment type interests on the other. And leaving to a sort of miscellaneous grab bag category all those other things that international relations um, has increasingly been about. The big issues of global public goods, regional public goods, arms control, disarmament, uh, responding, of course, to climate change, not that that was very big in our horizons back then, uh, health pandemics, uh, terrorism, uh, piracy, and just generally the uh, unregulated population movements, refugee outflows, and so on, all those issues which do require cooperative solutions uh, for their resolution because no country, however big or powerful, is capable of solving them by themselves. And what I thought to myself right from the beginning Rather than this just being a sort of a ragbag category of value-type issues that you do if you feel that you're in the mood or that there's some sort of community support for, we really ought to be thinking much more systematically about Australia's role as a champion of good international citizenship, values and interests and issues right across that spectrum of, of issues which called, uh, or problems which Kofi Annan used to call problems without passports because they were not so specifically relatable to particular countries. So what I, what I did was, right from the beginning, say that there were three categories of Australian interest. Traditional security interest, yes. Traditional economic interest, yes. But also our interest in being and being seen to be a good international citizen, by which I meant being and being seen to be the kind of country that actively exerts itself to try and advance through cooperative strategies of coalition building with like-minded countries and so on, uh, solutions to some of those big, outstanding, difficult problems, including conflict resolution with Cambodia and so on being, I guess, a good example of what we were able to do multilaterally. So with that framework, you then look at what your capabilities are against those interests, and you identify the sort of priorities that justify the expenditure of resources, energy, uh, and, um, and stamina. And uh, basically, that's what we tried to do. And it was all of this that I laid out in that, uh, one of those first big speeches at ANU that uh, the late, great Des Ball said, you know, as, as Nick described, well, that, was all, that was all very well, but when are you going to say something interesting? But I thought it was a, a necessary foundation for what followed. And um, it was really a compelling subtext. And it led to all sorts of activity with the UN trying to improve the quality of UN performance in a whole variety of areas, and certainly ended up giving Australia, I think, a lot of visibility, a lot of credibility in what was a very, um, a very lively period and a very optimistic period, as you say, for getting things done. You, you said in the book, and it was something that struck me because um, of the uh, temporal consonance with which I am at in my life, which is on, you, you, you were sworn in to be Foreign Minister three days shy of your 44th birthday, so you can all probably roughly work out how old I am, um, which sort of made me put, put me in a certain point. Um, if you were three days shy of your 44th birthday in 2018 and being sworn into a putative, actually less and less putative, ALP-shortened government, um, do you think that model that you developed then for thinking about how to do foreign policy, how Australia would approach its interests in the world... Hmm. Um, would it be the same today? Or yeah, it would, be, it would be the same model. I mean, the content obviously varies, the priorities vary, the preoccupations will vary, the opportunity to make a difference will vary from issue to issue, and they won't be the same issues. But exactly the same things prevail. Of course, we've got to worry about our security interests and do everything we can to work out how best to, to shore those interests up. Of course, we have to worry about our, 
our trade and investment uh, relationship with the rest of the world and shore all that up. But there's this whole bunch of other problems out there. And arms control and disarmament still is shrieking out as this uh, nuclear weapons in particular is an issue that, that demands attention. Refugees and population outflows demands attention like never before. Climate change is centre front in everybody's thinking internationally. And these are just issues which we can't treat as, as optional add-ons. We can't treat them as sort of Boy Scout good deeds territory. We've got to treat them as issues on which Australia does have a positive contribution to make. Uh, it's like all public goods issues, there's no one-to-one -one relationship between the effort and resources expended and the return. Um, the returns vary depending on where you are around the world. They're all issues in which uh, there's no one-to-one -one relationship of that kind. That's why we call them public goods issues. But they're nonetheless things in which Australia uh, stands to benefit from, um, at least indirectly, if we get them right. And we also stand to benefit from in terms of general reputation internationally. And this is the point I often make about these sorts of issues. They're not just um, sort of moral escapades that make us sort of feel good and are worth doing for their own selves, which of course they are. They are, they are actions and strategies and forms of engagement which do, which do give you quite hard-headed returns in terms of reciprocity when you're chasing a vote for something or chasing support for some particular policy which resonates a lot with you, like, for example, refugee movements now, but no, you know, other countries don't care quite so much about because it doesn't affect them so much. You get a, a tendency to, to get reciprocity going with them because of what you seem to be doing. And uh, you get a reputational advantage. And uh, I just think that's, that's gold for any country, is... We can see for those countries around us at the moment which are steadily uh, dissipating the reputational advantage that they might once have had. To have it is, is gold. So I think we ought to, and when I talk to Penny Wong and others in the, and, and indeed when I try to talk to Julie Bishop about this sort of stuff, I keep saying to them, don't treat this stuff in the forthcoming white paper as optional add-ons. Don't treat them as something vaguely to do with Australian values. Treat them as core national interests, the engagement because these, these set of transnational issues have frankly never been more important in, in international life than they are now. Yeah, well, I might come back to a couple of those issues as they pertain today, but I want to also talk a little bit about the personal, because the, the book, as all memoirs are, focuses a lot on individual relationships. Um, and I think one of the things when you teach international relations is it often feels like it's a very impersonal venture, or if it's personal, it's very elite. Uh, but one thing that really did stand out, particularly in your discussion of some of the contentious and difficult things like, Cam like the, particularly the Cambodia Peace Accord, was the importance of personal relationships yeah. and, and particularly the fact that Ali Alatas, I think, has more index entries than the ALP does in your book is, is interesting in, in itself. I mean, one could psychoanalyze it, if you like. But it's not just um, Alatas, although he was very important, but um, Chan Chi Chen, uh, the Chinese veteran diplomat figures as a, as a key player to helping um, Australia and, and broader endeavours. How important do you think that personal relationship side of, of um, foreign policy is? Or do you feel, or, or is there a sense that the, the memoir kind of overstates the role of the individual? No, the, the personal relationships have always been fantastically important in international relations. The thing about personal relationships, you don't elevate them to occupy um, preeminence in place of a hard-headed assessment of your own national interests or what is in the larger global or regional interest. I mean, Donald Trump's style of, of international relations is all about personal relationships, there's nothing else, and he just doesn't seem to think in terms of larger contexts, doesn't seem to think very consistently. It's all about 
you know, who can flatter whom the most and who can get the, the greatest sort of buzz out of the, uh, the, the sort of occasion. He just thinks of everything in those terms. Well, I don't, I don't want to, you know, lend this to parody, this, uh, this kind of concept, because um, it is possible to sort of over, over-dramatise and over-centralise and over-emphasise personal life. But they're fantastically important lubricants um, in terms of getting things done. If you've got a trusting relationship uh, with someone that, um, you know, really does matter around the place, as someone like Jim Baker did, the Secretary of State, who was probably the best US Secretary of State that I dealt with, hard-headed Republican though he was, if you've got a trusting relationship with someone like Chen Chi Chen, that then very highly regarded uh, Chinese foreign minister, very senior in the decision-making hierarchy, then you can get all sorts of uh, things done. I mean, Chen Chi Chen's an interesting example because um, he had much less sort of superficial bonhomie than some of the other Chinese leaders traditionally had. Um, and, you know, drinking over Mao Tai and all the rest of that. He didn't do that sort of stuff. Uh, but he was very straight and very substantive and very reliable. When you finally got something going, you could absolutely rely on him to deliver. And he was absolutely crucial, for example, in the international movement to establish this principle of responsibility to protect, which nobody expected genocide, mass atrocity crimes, response thereto, which nobody expected the Chinese to really buy into because of their traditional preoccupation with keeping foreign eyes away from internal affairs. But he was very, very solid. And uh, we, we, we did have a quite an engaging kind of relationship, which, uh, as I describe in the book, I mean, had its most disconcerting element. When I hosted a big banquet for him in Canberra on one occasion, and I began my, uh, my banquet speech, uh, as one does, by saying what a fantastically significant human being he was, as well as great foreign minister, and how important it was. And, you know, just gave him the full, the full works, uh, but in a very substantive way. When he began his speech in reply to the toast, his opening line was probably the most disconcerting one I've ever, I've ever experienced in public life. He said, when I first met Foreign Minister Gareth Evans, I didn't like him very much. <laughs> but um, there was a but which followed it. And but, you know, we, we got to know each other and it's now a trusting and nice relationship. So he was, he was a little bit idiot. In fact, the relationship with Alatas has sometimes been misunderstood in the... Uh, Australian public, Australian media is sort of sucking up to the Indons and, you know, trying to, to uh, apologise for the sins that were perpetrated over East Timor, which were, were extreme and, and legendary. But Alatas was someone I found quintessentially decent, not least on the issue of East Timor, because he was trying his entire time as foreign minister to get a solution, not an independent solution, but not even East Timorese thought that was very credible. Uh, which did involve getting the Indonesian military out, um, significant economic support in, respect for culture, language and all those things, and came as near as damn it to pulling it off and was a a constant voice uh, for decency uh, with the Suharto regime on that issue. But I developed a relationship with him right from the beginning, which was really very important because we came to the position about the same time and the Indonesia-Australia relationship had been going through one of its really tumultuous periods um, and a lot of difficulty in the relationship. And we sort of somehow just managed to, to hit it off and worked together so well over those sort of bilateral issues that then when we decided to take on the resolution of the uh, Cambodian issue, it was really the relationship that I had with Alatas which was critical to getting that moving. If it, if it had just been an Australian initiative 
uh, it would have had some sort of impact, I suppose, but the fact that I was able to work so well with Alatas and be a resource delegation for him, let the Indonesians take the major visible credit at the time for taking the thing forward. So the the personal stuff really is just incredibly important and you've got to get it right. This this actually is a useful segue to talking about the sort of contemporary domestic politics of, of foreign policy and I mean, obviously, the Australian political system is in kind of its tenth year of convulsion and instability. And it's, it, it's a stark contrast mm. to the, the Hawke Keating Howard years, where you had mm. stable, long lived governments with prime ministers with you know, strong command of caucus and all the stuff we know about. Um, one of the, and I think one of the things you, that, that really struck me when I was reading the book was how, I mean, yes, Julie Bishop's been foreign minister, foreign minister for a few years. But the ability to build those relationships is is stymied by that domestic political instability. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about what um, what impact Australia's po- domestic political challenges have had on Australian foreign policy in recent years. I don't think um, Julie Bishop's been inhibited in developing good personal relations with her counterparts all around the world. She's actually a very good transactional foreign minister, just as Julia Gillard was a very good transactional prime minister in terms of her capacity to not only master and internalise a brief, but to deal with the people she meets in a way that's um, you know, friendly, relaxed and sort of essentially Australian in its, its quality. And I, I've got um, no criticism at all about the way in which you know, President Foreign Ministers has handled her job. What I, in that sense, what I, what I do criticise is the absence of any particular proactive brief um, on any of the, really, the big issues that, that matter. We've been, um, you know coming along in the rear on, uh, on everything from climate change to obviously the treatment of the refugee issues, which has been shame on all your houses, both sides of Australian politics. Uh, we've been hopelessly behind the eight ball on the uh, nuclear arms control disarmament issue, which is, you know, should be centre front in most people's thinking. And uh, you know, the aid policy is, expenditure has gone through the floor. And I think it's those things that are, um, that are affecting uh, you know, the conduct and the credibility of our foreign relations much more than any interpersonal relations. And I suppose that can be traced back very directly to you know, the, the, the party in power, the government in power, which uh, is just not very interested in this sort of stuff, not inherently interested in it, but also totally preoccupied by the domestic circus and, uh, and simply not devoting the resources and energy to, uh, to articulating a, a decent Australian position on these issues. Yeah, there's another strand of thought which argues that part of it's also a function of what sometimes is described as a kind of presidentialization of Australian politics, but particularly of foreign policy, because I think, from my view, from 96 onwards, Australian foreign policy becomes really the purview of the PMs and the PMO. Well, it's perfectly true that, I mean, Alexander Downer's one mission in life was to not move more than a quarter millimetre from John Howard on anything. I think if... um, if Alexander had been left to his own devices and his own instincts, I know from talking to him in those early years, um, when I used to talk to him a fair bit, uh, and also later on when he used to visit me in Brussels, his own instincts were reasonably internationalist, were reasonably creative, and certainly much more focused on Asia, the region, and you know, not the caricature Anglosphere stuff that we, we saw in those early Howard years. But he was a sort of a prisoner of the, the politics of the time um, and to get the job that he wanted, he had to snuggle up to the Prime Minister. He was desperately keen to recreate his own credibility after the debacle of his own leadership earlier on. So all of these things came into play. 
And it was the case that Howard's and Howard's instincts, which were very much small Australia and, you know, not remotely as, as, uh, as creative or initiative prone as I think the Hawke-Keating government had been, we just settled back into that, uh, you know, rather dreary mode. And, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the United States leapt back into centre stage as the, the be-all and end-all and whither thou goest, there, there we went, uh, whether it was Iraq or anything else. And I think uh, it was slowly diminishing, you know, credibility as a result of that um, that domestic dynamic being at work. The best relations between foreign minister and prime minister is when you've got a reasonably, you know, strong-willed and I suppose reasonably strong um, foreign minister, but working in total harmony with the uh, with the prime minister. I mean, lips and teeth, as the Indonesians say, not meaning to be taken literally, and is the the kind of relationship that you want, not a paper tissue between you. On the, big, uh, on the big positions that you take on the great issues of the day and respect by the Prime Minister and for what you're doing in your own area and giving you quite a lot of, of latitude and freedom uh, to do that. Well, we just haven't had that kind of um, Prime Minister-Foreign Minister relationship really since the Hawke-Keating period. I want to now turn to, to the region and start again back um, in that period of, in the 80s and early 90s, that period of historic change and opportunity, the Cold War had ended... Um, there's a great photo in the book of your hand coming out from behind the, the, the Berlin Wall shaking a, a, an East German guard's hand. Or at least I assume it's your hand. We can't tell because we can't see you. Um, but there was that sense also that globalisation was still a positive force, that liberalisation was a good thing, um, and that Australia was increasingly open to its geography in that sense, moving away from the desire we seem to have had to want to tow the continent into the North Atlantic. Um, and there's a great anecdote in... in uh, I think it's the fourth chapter, talking about how you're in Jakarta as part of the big negotiations around the Cambodia yeah. peace deal, and you stumble into the yeah. wrong room. Yeah. And it's the ASEAN minister, ASEAN foreign ministers, and you kind of go, ah. And they say, no, no, you're one of us. Come on in. Come on in, you're one of us. Yeah. And, and then I was really struck by the, a sentence or two after that, which said, there's no group of counterparts anywhere in the world with whom I felt more close and comfortable than my Southeast Asian colleagues. Mm. Now, this is the early 90s. This is not 2004. Um, can you explain that? You know, how did this happen? And, you know, given how swiftly... You know, you just, you just, the other thing I was really utterly surprised by in your book was how, on your way to Oxford, you decided to backpack, as a lot of people did, first stop Saigon in the 60s, which is a rather peculiar choice. Well, wasn't and I assume you stop. weren't being funded by the CIA. No. Um, so, but, but I guess in 20 years, you've got this, yeah. this shift. And well, Saigon wasn't the first stop. That was about the ninth stop, stop because I, <laughs> I spent six months travelling overland and plane hopping through about 30 countries uh, right across Southeast Asia and South Asia and Africa, Middle East and Eastern Europe. Uh, and that, that, that was an incredibly formative set of experiences. And I have to say that did influence my engagement with commitment to uh, the countries of our own immediate region. Um, some of the friendships I formed, um, you know, with actual individuals, which continued on. The later guy was Secretary General of Golka, someone I was a is someone I actually met on the Bandung campus, just uh, wandering amiably around. And uh, he said, you know, got into a chat, and he said, uh, we've got this English language class, uh, got some missionary coming to talk to us. Why don't you come and uh, join in the class? And of course, the missionary was a crazed American fundamentalist, and the uh, the class, as a result, was a bit more boisterous than what anyone had previously been used to, and uh, it was quite a memorable occasion for everyone involved. And you know, and, and that that friendship forged there continued later on, and there were friendships all around the region. 
And I'd spent a lot of time on the ground um, in each of these countries, and it was, they, were, they were totally familiar environments. They weren't um, stuff that I was flying into for the first time as foreign minister to, you know, my first encounter with the town being a you know, black car and flanked by my motorcycle outriders. So, so there was that instinct, plus, plus the commitment I had, the very strong sense that in developing a foreign policy, you had to start with your immediate neighbourhood, by which I actually meant the South Pacific, and that's where I did physically start my first visit. But the immediate Southeast Asian neighbourhood, I was totally persuaded, was the key to getting our foreign policy right. Uh, that you know, not only in security terms was this the region through which any uh, threat to Australia had to come or from which it would be derived, uh, but these were countries of incredibly great potential significance in the way that and it's so to now. I mean, Indonesia... We, still, we, we keep forgetting that Indonesia's already got you know, more than 250 million people. It's going to be the fourth biggest economy in the world by 2050. And yet um, Australian firms just don't seem to have got that message at all. So it was partly a result of the comfort of previous personal experience and my youth as a student and going backwards and forwards to Europe. It was partly a very deliberate um, sort of intellectual decision, I suppose, to make this a priority. And it was part just of the, the reality of the nature of the way that ASEAN diplomacy works. It's very, it works to this day. Um, it's very much um, personal relationship-centred. A huge amount of it um, depends on the kind of relationships you forge, would you believe, on the golf course. I mean, everybody's fairly mediocre golfers, mercifully. You don't have to you know, be able to do much better than, than 100 or even that. But um, you do have to be willing to spend the time and develop the, you know, the, sort, of the, the sort of relationships that, um, that flow from just that constant exposure to each other. And uh, I just found a very comfortable environment to be in. And when you had some of the personalities we then had who were both strong and committed and um, you know, very, very thoughtful in policy terms, and with Ali Alitas being the star among them, um, it was really uh, was, was not something that... Uh, had any theatrics about it, was absolutely genuine. But I guess there was also that sense of being accepted because I think there was, it's one thing to come knocking at the door and saying, yeah. hey, we'd like to be part of the club. It's another for Southeast Asia to say, and that was the thing that struck me, is you're one of us. Is that sense Yeah, well, I mean, look, as, as I say in the book, it's probably the single most moving thing that's ever been said to me in, in foreign affairs, going into that little room, blundering my way into a, you know, a, a, what was a coffee meeting during a break in proceedings, I was just looking for someone to make a phone call. So come in, come in, come in, you'll, don't, don't be embarrassed, you're, you're one of us. And um, that, was, that was nice. And I, I can't quite imagine anyone saying that now, but then ASEAN's changed. I mean, it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot more fragile at the moment than it's been for a long time in state of democracy, state of human rights, and state of collective will to do serious um, security things together and um, you know it's probably a more difficult environment for anyone now yeah, to try was, to recreate those relationships. It was smaller, there was six at that stage, it wasn't yeah, ten, you yeah. didn't have the, 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 harder, sure. the harder players. But there's the phrase you also use in, in the book describing um, Australia as the kind of odd man in um, the region, Australia is the odd man in Asia. Do you think that's I mean, it, clearly that's the case now, but do you think Australia is becoming in, more instinctively and intuitively part of the region? Well, that was Dick Wilcott's phrase, not mine, although I cheerfully pinched it. Australia as the odd man in, in Asia. Um, yeah, we're still, I think, we're still hovering on the, on the fringes. It's, um, it really does require the total commitment to presenting ourselves in these terms. The Paul Keating 
fully embraced, more, more than any of our recent foreign ministers. I mean, Kevin Rudd, to a significant extent, yes, also. Uh, but Keating was the one who went on a journey himself. Remember, in his early political life, he famously said that Asia was the place you flew over on your way to the antique shops of Paris. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's the way he thought. But, it, but I mean, the, the thing about Keating was just the way he grew so visibly in front of your eyes as, you know, as his political career progressed and as he connected all these individual mine shafts that he dug separately and developed a view of the world. Um, he, he got it about Asia. Um, and I think... Most, you know, John Howard took a long while to get it, but towards the last three or four years of his prime ministership, he, the penny really dropped it. Um, I mean, he never ever would concede, as the, the point that I've been making for years, that our, our history, uh, sorry, our future depends much more on our geography than our history. That was my mantra right from the beginning as foreign minister. Well, you'd never get someone like Howard saying that, but he did appreciate the, the significance. How much the region appreciates our commitment, I think, waxes and wanes with the degree of commitment that we actually show uh, when we're, you know, when we're um, joining up with other Asians, doing Asian things like supporting the Chinese AIIB, the Asian Investment Bank, and not following the um, you know, American instruction effectively not to have anything to do with this uh, ugly piece of you know, Chinese institution aggrandizement. When we're behaving as Asian, when we're throwing ourselves into something like the RCEP, the Regional Economic Cooperation Program, uh, when we're doing things like we did in the Hawke-Keating period of developing these um, Asia-centric new dialogue and policy mechanisms, both on economic and security matters, when we're doing those things, I think it's very easy for us uh, to, be, uh, to be accepted as, um, you know, a part of the region, you know, maybe not Asian in character, but a part of the, the region, whether it's the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. Uh, but, you know, still a big shortfall in, uh, not so much among policymakers, but, um, but in the wider community in terms of our understanding of this, particularly the business community. I was actually shocked to read the statistic the other day. I don't know how many of you saw that. There's more Australian investment still in New Zealand than there is in China, Japan, India, Indonesia, and the whole of the rest of ASEAN combined. More Australian investment in New Zealand. Well, we all love New Zealand. We're very comfortable in that relationship. But doesn't it tell you something about where businessmen's blinkers currently still are? And if we are going to get the most of this uh, relationship and take advantage of our geography, we're really going to have to throw ourselves into those economic relationships with a hell of a lot more vigour and enthusiasm than we have. Before we get to China, there's one thing that really that, that I wanted to press you on a little bit because it was it, it, it's on the cover of the book. Kofi Annan describes you as one of the world's great internationalists, hmm. um, and I, I would not contest that claim. But I was struck by the slightly dated feel of that term that someone is an internationalist. Uh, what's your sense of internationalism as an idea and particularly as as an idea that guided policy because I think if you look at your time in foreign ministry and then and particularly as your time at, at um, crisis group and internationalism I think suffuses your view of the world and what can be done in it and yet there's a feeling I was just wondering where, where you feel it's but look, at now but, but you know it's not just me it's suffused the whole government's view of what we're doing I mean the whole the whole trick about the whole Keating period is that we did have a coherent policy narrative that had three legs it had, yes, all the dry economic stuff, competitive and productivity-focused and open 
trading-focused pro-globalisation dimension, yes. Secondly, it had a very, very important social dimension, compassionate, compensatory, very warm, very moist, making absolutely sure that all the dry economic stuff didn't wreak havoc with people's lives and that you did have all these other social wage and other mechanisms. But the third leg, the third leg was liberal internationalist foreign policy, not just trade policy, not just feeding into the globalisation narrative and the open society narrative, but because we genuinely saw this country as flourishing, thriving, in a you know, free-flowing, open international environment. We genuinely saw a big range, and I've already talked about this, a big range of policy problems as only capable of resolution through genuine multilateral internationalist action and a mindset, and not just thinking you could do stuff with bilateral relations with the great and powerful Washington or whatever. Uh, it's, it's a mindset that I think you know, was intensely relevant for that whole period and it governed the way in which policy was done. But it's a mindset which is still totally, totally, totally relevant today. Um, I don't think anybody under, you know, begins to understate the scale of the international problems which are out there, which still exist, I'm not going to list them again, which do demand such cooperative action. I don't think anybody... I mean, yes, there's been a bit of a backlash against economic globalisation, but the bigger backlash and the bigger policy problem is not globalisation but digitalisation. It's the technology that's gone with that. That's where the real anxiety is being generated about the future of work and the next generation's jobs. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to still keep making the case for open economies as benefiting everybody. But um, that's, that's, you know, the international storyline is still a good one and... It's still one that I think is perfectly capable of resonating with the wider community, provided it's, it's a storyline that's told as part of a, a coherent philosophical narrative and not just you know, a function of being seen to be more interested in what happens out there than what happens here. And I guess that's, that's one of the noticeable differences now from then, which is there's, there's, there's a shortage of leadership and a, sh- a shortage of... Ad- sorry, excuse me, a shortage of advocacy about it. And, and there's that line from your preface, which is fairly stark... Um, it says, the environment for good public policymaking, both internationally and domestically, is as desolate as I can ever remember. Now, let's leave the domestic side, put the domestic to one side. From an international policy point of view, why, why do you think that is? Is it that, that, that globalisation and the concerns about it, is it about the return of geopolitics and insecurity that states have? Um, why do you think that the, the international public policy realm is so grim? Well, I'm still optimistic about its capacity to do better, and I don't want that storyline to completely disappear from this increasingly gloomy uh, discussion that we're having. And I'm primarily optimistic because I think, you know, the world as a whole, for all the the headlines screaming at you otherwise, uh, has made really dramatic progress over decades, certainly the centuries, in terms of getting people out of poverty, reducing violence and improving human rights. But there's still all sorts of spikes and all sorts of ugliness. Um, so the question was... Well, I mean, yeah, it was... There was about five questions. I'll, I'll, yeah, I know. Uh, but the, I guess there's two things. One is, um, is, the, is the current era one in which internationalism and the story you need to tell about internationalism is a, is a very hard one to make? Well, it, it should not be a hard one to make because it should be easy enough to communicate if you've got decent storytellers that there are these problems out there these existential problems of climate, the existential problem of possible nuclear weapons exchange, which are in everybody's interest to get right. 
there are these other big, big issues of health pandemics, the big issues of unregulated population flows and all the, the stress that's associated with that, the big, big issue of terrorism, the big, big issue of, you know, you, you name it. There's a whole bunch of them out there. And it's, it's that these issues, are these problems, are really only capable of resolution by cooperative international action and through the, the much maligned United Nations and all the rest of it. And... Um, I think, you know, when you start telling these stories and telling them effectively, they, uh, it, does, it does resonate. The fact that it's difficult to tell the stories is more a function um, of, I think, the preoccupations of domestic politics, the combination of economic anxiety, security anxiety, post-9-11, cultural anxiety, which has got all mixed up with the security and the economic anxiety, the traditional fear of the other, and if it's wearing uh, sort of Muslim um, clothing. It's got that much more resonance for particular people who feel stressed for other reasons. So all of these things do sort of combine and um, they tend to create an inward-looking kind of political dynamic which makes it less attractive to policymakers to think that they can contest that by, by talking international talk. But, but you take someone like Macron in France. I mean, the jury is still out, of course, as to whether Macron is in fact going to succeed and there's a big backlash coming both at him from the, the hard left and the hard right um, in a lot of what he's trying to do. But he cuts straight through the middle um, on all of this by a policy agenda which was extraordinarily to me reminiscent of the, the three-legged you know, Australian agenda that I described um, and the Hawke-Keating government which in turn was reminiscent of you know, the Blair Third Way agenda before he lost his own way um, in Iraq. But that combination of tough-minded, disciplined economics, compassionate, compensatory social policy, and a liberal international foreign policy willing to get out and mix it and to recognise the advantages that flow from effective international cooperation, whether it's through organisations like the EU or whether it's through working in regional forums like the ones that uh, you've written so much about and that I helped uh, identify and create here. I think that storyline is, is one that is capable of cutting through. And what we need is the storytellers with the confidence to, to take the electorate seriously. And um, I think the, the degree of disaffection now with um, you know, sort of low-grade domestic political discourse, sloganeering, um, you know, lowest common denominator pictures is not really resonating with a great many people in the electorate. It's not that we expect the electorate to ever be in, very interested in or in command of the detail, um, but they sort of know when they've got competent governments that are addressing serious issues, and they know when they've got governments and politicians that are engaged in third-rate vaudeville. And um, I think far too much of domestic politics in far too much of the West um, has descended into third-rate vaudeville. And, um, you know, it's time for policymakers to treat the electorate as a bit more grown-up and to articulate these policies with all these multiple dimensions, including the international one. I want to turn now to, to um, someone who's is presenting a story to the world, um, an ambitious one, one that's trying to put a kind of internationalist flavour to it um, on the back of the 19th Party Congress on the back of the Belt and Road Forum yeah. and, indeed, the Trump visit, which is Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping is taking the opportunity, I think, of the Trump vacation of... And I mean that in the exit stage right sense of the term. Um, 
of the stage of international leadership, and particularly the mantle of leading an international liberal order, as an opportunity to present. So far, it's a story. It's not, yeah, there's not sure. action yet. Um, what do you think China wants? If you're, you know, if you're sitting down in your putative Australian foreign minister in 2018 and thinking about here's this country and just beginning to form a view as to what it is that China under Xi Jinping wants from the world, what's your sense of where he wants to take that country? Well, I think really it's pretty straightforward and it's been pretty obvious for quite a long time. They want to be global rule makers, not global rule takers. They want to be part of the action in setting the terms of that rule-based international order. They're not uncomfortable with a rule-based international order. I mean, they don't like it very much when it impinges on them in security terms of the South China Sea. We'll come back to that. But I've always found um, my Chinese interlocutors um, in the past, and I'm not prepared to believe there's any fundamental change going on now, I've always found them um, you know, quite willing to operate within that framework to accept the role as as responsible stakeholders and to participate reasonably constructively in, um, you know, in all the international stuff I've been involved in. As China's become more assertive in so many ways, um, maybe, maybe that stance is beginning to change a bit and maybe it's less cooperative and more assertive in too many forums that, you know, like the Security Council that I'm not now seeing close up. But, um, but being part of the rule-making order is a totally reasonable aspiration. And as recently, um, you know, as, recently as, the, as the Obama administration, you had that being contested. I don't know how many of you remember Obama's language about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this trade thing that's generating so much attention. And Obama actually said um, in the last year of his presidency, in so many words, we make the rules. It's not China that's going to make the rules about trade. We make the rules. And I can't think of anything more calculated to be just a turn-off to the reality of the evolution of Chinese power, but also to the mindset of Chinese policymakers. When they hear that, what do you, how do you expect them to react? I mean, they'll be defensive, aggressive. They'll be. It, it was just a very, very silly and counterproductive thing to say. The other big thing I think about um, Chinese approach to um, this is that they do to its current position is they do want something which can be loosely described as strategic space um, in Asia, in terms of the East Asian littoral. Uh, they do feel you know, very underwhelmed by the Americans continuing to assist, insist on very close uh, military presence, you know, offshore China in a way that Americans would be very pissed off if the Chinese got offshore San Diego, San Diego. I mean, it's just the amount of American hardware steaming up and down and around the, uh, the Chinese littoral is really quite stunning. And, you know, obviously they're building a degree of military capability to be able to steer that down. And they obviously just want to be able to have that space for themselves. Um, so that's, again, not an unreasonable aspiration. But it's a question of how that aspiration works itself out. And I don't think it should be a matter of the rest of us just taking all, this, all these manifestations of Chinese assertiveness at face value. And in particular, I think we're entitled to, be, uh, to engage in a fair degree of pushback. And it's very important that we all engage in pushback when you get to things like the South China Sea, which is manifestly an example of China not being prepared to listen to the rules of a 
as determined by an international tribunal, the rule-based order, claiming sovereignty where sovereignty manifestly can't exist under international law over these little reefs, building military installations on them in manifest breach of international law, and trying to stare down anyone who wants to challenge that um, those breaches of international law by, for example, sailing naval ships within 12 nautical miles of these non-sovereign entities. I, th- I personally think that you know, there is a, a very definite Chinese disposition for creeping hegemony. They really would be quite like to recreate that old set of tributary relationships around Southeast Asia where everybody kowtowed. The Belt and Road Initiative, of course, is a, is a gothically scaled manifestation of that. I mean, it's very obviously in their economic interest to to build these relationships very much in their political and strategic interests. But it's, um, and a lot of this is perfectly, perfectly defensible and will add an awful lot of economic and hopefully security value to the way that neglected part of the world operates in the future. But, um, and all of it's, all of it, you know, is up to a point reasonable, but only up to a point. And I think we, you know, just as we should never have been a patsy for overreach by the Americans and the exercise of their enthusiastic power, um, nor should we be patsies in our response to the Chinese. But we should be understanding of what they're trying to do, and I think what Xi Jinping um, is doing is just a manifestation of, of what I described. Obviously, he's been a little bit cynical about the way he's leaped, leapt in to, uh, to fill the gap which has been so spectacularly left by Trump's abdication of leadership on all these issues. Uh, but that's, I just think it's a good thing that you've got someone talking up global leadership and climate change, talking up global the absolute necessity to keep a, a globalised market economy. And if it's Chinese um, saying it now loudly and clearly, well, we ought to be applauding, not, uh, not being too sceptical. There's a question, I guess, of, you know, from an Australian point of view, I think there's a tendency to sort of look at a region that seems to be beholden to kind of great power rivalry and it's, it's um, the US and China and, and we're just going to have to sit there and it's either we're either with the Yanks or we're, or we're kind of shifting out of their orbit and into China's orbit. And yet I think that understates the extent to which um, countries around the region can shape what China does and influence. And I think perhaps we, we don't seem to have thought through what it is that, that middle powers, the term you, you embrace, um, can do to shape the preferences and behaviour of a country of, of China's stature. Well, there's a lot that, uh, lot that the rest of us can, in fact, do through cooperative activity, and that's what I tend to mean when I talk about Australia's foreign policy stance in response to all of this being more self-reliance, more Asia, and less the United States. And the more Asia, I don't necessarily mean at all leaping into these sort of quadrilateral encirclement arrangements that have got everybody so excited at the moment, um, with Australia linking up with India, Japan, and, uh, and the United States. Uh, I think that's got its own set of worries. But Australia developing and forging much stronger uh, working relationships with, if not the whole of ASEAN in its present um, fragile and disaggregated mood, but uh, certainly with Indonesia, certainly with Vietnam, um, certainly with um, Singapore. We used to say Malaysia, but Malaysia's uh, in such a mess now in terms of the quality of its governance, you have to be cautious about that. But these are all countries with, who are significant players in terms of their military and economic resources and with whom uh, it would make a huge amount of sense to make, uh, to make common cause. And, of course, with, with India, uh, 
how many times have we tried to get this relationship with India moving? And it's engraved on my soul. I made no progress at all. Uh, we, we're doing a lot better now than we, we used to. India's potentially here. Um, but in all of this, it really, a huge amount still does continue to depend on the United States. And, uh, the, and I think what the rest of us ought to be doing, among other things, is constantly talking to the United States about what its proper role in relation to all of this is and how important it is uh, for the United States to, to recognise the reality of what's happening, to adjust its rhetoric and to adjust its behaviour accordingly, not through either completely abdicating a regional role or global leadership on the contrary, but nor by asserting what I call the DLP words, dominance, leadership, primacy, preeminence. Uh, in the way that it so often has. The most intelligent thing that I've ever heard any American leader say about this emerging new global and regional reality was, uh, was actually, and I talk about it in the book, was, was actually Bill Clinton in 2002 when I found myself in circumstances we won't try to begin to describe in, in Hollywood sharing a platform with him at a fundraising event um, in which I heard Clinton say to this private audience, and he never ever said it publicly in anything like as stark a terms as this, and I've often quoted it. What he said was, this is, he said, America's got two choices about the way in which we use this great and unrivaled military and economic power that we have. Choice number one is to use that huge power that we have to try to stay top dog on the global block in perpetuity. Choice number two is to use that great and unrivaled military and economic power to create a world in which we are comfortable living when we are no longer top dog on the global block. I thought that was just pitch perfect in recognising the inevitability of Chinese or whatever you know, challenges to American total global supremacy, recognising that the, uh, you know, the American moment through the 90s post-war was just a moment, it wasn't destined to last forever, and what was critical was to try to create an international order, a global environment, in which everyone could live comfortably and cooperatively. You don't find that language ever being used publicly to this day by American leaders. The brightest, the smartest of them use that kind of language or have that sort of mindset all the time. No question about that. But they just regard it as something you can't talk to the American public about, to concede that America could be anything other ever than number one. And I think that's just um, nonsensical and it's uh, very, very important for Australia, our voice to be used in a way which reinforces the better instincts of American policymakers and not the worst. And that, that story that you tell has the ultimate accolade of being A, recounted by Henry Kissinger, but crucially credited to you. No, no, that wasn't that story. Wasn't that one? No. Which one was that one? I'm confusing well, the, ghosts in the book. Well, the other, not good the, enough. No. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, it's, it's a great story, but it, uh, no, Henry wasn't very interested in that one. He, he likes the idea of American primacy in perpetuity, I think. That's a story that Henry Kissinger liked, is one uh, about my meeting with Yitzhak Rabin in, uh, in, uh, in Israel about three months before he was assassinated, when I was telling him with my usual chutzpah as a foreign minister what he ought to be doing to fix the Palestinian problem. And I uh, broke off halfway through my little riff and said... Um, but of, course, but of course, I'm preaching to the converted. Starts, and he sits up, a little, little half smile. He said, 
you're preaching to the committed, not the converted. <laughs> and I thought that was pitch perfect, absolutely pitch perfect. He was a Judea, Samaria, liquid sort of a guy. He was never going to be enthusiastic, but he knew exactly what had to be done to fix the Palestine-Middle East problem and to guarantee Israel's security in perpetuity, which, of course, is why he was killed by Israeli extremists three months later. Well, Henry did like that story, did put it in his book. You'll find it in the footnote, page whatever it is, in the third volume of Diplomacy. And he attributed it to me, which is uh, deeply, deeply unusual, and uh, I'm indebted accordingly. Having, having completely screwed up the telling of that story. No, um, but the, the key point is Kissinger is the ultimate plagiarist, and for him to, to cite anyone is a, is a remarkable achievement, and probably one of the greatest testimonies yeah. to Gareth's input, impact in the study of world politics. Well, we have until 7.30, so we've got time for plenty of questions and discussion. Yeah. Um, Gareth has painted a, a fantastic picture, and there's plenty. I've had my... Um, our chucking questions at him. So please, if you could raise your hand, if you could keep your questions, A, questions, and B, short, uh, and too broadly the topic we're here, but, but feel free to, 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 to um, go reasonably widely. Can we have the light? The light. Can you lift the light up just a little bit? It's a little in the room. Let us see you. Yeah, there we go. Perfect. That's much better, thank Perfect. you. Okay, right here in the front. Um, there's a couple of mics that'll come around. There's a mic, yeah. Okay, so your comment about Australian investment in New Zealand being more than in Asia, would that be the banks? Is that what say? Would that be the banks? That like, include the banks? Yeah, I'm just wondering what that investment would be in New Zealand. I can only think of our major banks, like ANZ or... I, I, look, I haven't seen it disaggregated, but I think it's across all sectors. I mean, it's, um, it's agriculture, it's to the extent that there's any... Um, manufacturing going on, but it's, it's certainly financial services, certainly banking services, yeah. Um, it is a surprising statistic. Yeah, well, it's, well I'm not... I, I can give you my theory on this, but I won't bore you because you're not here to hear it. But a lot of it's retail, a lot of it's Frank Lowy. Um, oh, but the t top 10 Australian FDIs to OECD countries, Australian FDI is extremely risk-averse. Um, and it's, and it's, I, I think it's a function of the Australian domestic business culture, but that's, that's another day. Yeah. Um, all right, Ian at the front here. So shopping malls, I didn't yeah. know that was a big part of it. Yeah, OK, there we go. Sorry. Thank you. I'm curious... Sorry, Ian, just wait for the, the oh, um, microphone. Thank you, Gareth. I'm curious to know, when you finished in Canberra, why you opted to join the International Crisis Group, as distinct from the UN, where I presume um, a position... Uh, could have awaited you. Mean uh, a very minor, low-key, at that time, uh, international uh, NGO. Well, it didn't remain a low-key international <laughs> NGO. But, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, the, the, the short answer is I didn't have your class. Uh, I, I couldn't get into the UN system in any sort of senior position. And, um, and I was actually told a number of times what the reason for that was. Um, too much colour and movement. I had too many views about things. Uh, I sort of wanted to do stuff. And you don't get those big jobs in the UN system uh, wanting to do stuff. Um, you, know, you get good jobs in the UN system in other executive positions and roles lower down, as you've demonstrated during your career. But, um, but no, I, uh, I, I ran at one stage for UN High Commissioner for, Human, uh, for, uh, for Refugees, uh, the job that Guterres got, and Guterres was probably a much better appointment than I would have been. I uh, ran for UNESCO at one stage, um, which was a bit implausible given the limitations of my French, but nonetheless it was a plausible candidature. But each time, um, you know, the, the reputation for wanting to actually do stuff 
and to be reasonably outspoken um, was regarded as a bit of a no-no. Anyway, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But, <laughs> okay, um, at the back, Chris Roach. Uh, thanks for that. Chris Roach from the Institute for Human Security and Social Change at La Trobe. Um, Jack Corbett, in his recent book on for- the foreign aid dilemma, suggests that uh, the role of foreign aid and international cooperation has been kind of downplayed in foreign policy. And he, he suggests that Alan Gingell and, and Michael Wesley's book on making foreign policy really didn't go there adequately. Um, and I think Michael Wells- Wesley, in launching the book in Canberra, said very much he wished he'd actually looked at it more, the question of how... And I think that corresponds to your thought of the other stuff that, that needs to be done. Yeah. But, uh, but I just wonder, and it's really a question, Gareth, what should the Nick Bisleys of the world be doing in universities to be making sure that actually the next generation of foreign policy uh, advisors of international development people are actually doing an effective job? Well, I take um, aid tremendously seriously, and um, I constantly had to fight huge battles inside the government to get that you know, percentage of ODA up from the lamentable levels it was when I inherited 0.3 or whatever to, you know, we were starting the trek towards um, 0.5 of, uh, of GDP, but um, we didn't ever sort of really get there. But, I mean, this so important in so many different areas. It's not just the poverty reduction, you know, the immediate and traditional and proper focal point. It's all the stuff that you can do with well-crafted, well-constructed aid policy when it comes to improving the quality of governance, improving, you know, security to developing conflict prevention mechanisms and all the sort of things that impact indirectly but crucially on people's well-being. And uh, I just find it a complete um, you know, tragedy that uh, we've now let slip the commitment, which was there loud and clear under the last Labor government, to edge up towards the international gold standard of 0.7. That's now down to um, you know, 0.22, which is you know, what 22 cents in every $100 of GDP we spend on aid. 22 cents. I mean, if you ask the community, they'll probably think you know, 0.22 means... 22% or something, but it's a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of the uh, our budgetary expenditure, a tiny percentage of our GDP, and I think it's just lamentable that um, we've abdicated that ability to... Uh, and, of course, so much of the aid is, um, is so, these days, self-consciously spent on Australian contractors and, you know, Australian firms, Australian goods, Australian services... Um, so that you can argue that it's really in the national interest. I mean, the whole point about aid is that it should be, should be selfless and focused on things um, which are you know, just inherently worth doing and which will make the world a safer and saner place. I'm just very passionate on that subject. I'm not as articulate as I should be, but I'm very passionate about it and very, very, very pissed off at the way in which it's just drifted out of sight. Um, in terms of um, you know, foreign policy making. I'm not that stressed about the aid agency coming back into DFAT, which is a sort of separate issue which a lot of people will regard as part of the charge sheet against the current government. It's always been an argument as to whether you're more influential or more effective, um, you know, sort of inside the immediate departmental tent or outside it. But to bring it inside the tent and then denude of senior personnel and denude it of a budget... Um, is probably you know the worst of all possible worlds. 
Yeah, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she was famous as saying America considered as the sort of levers of power, defence, diplomacy and development as three sort of co-equal elements. I mean, it's a little hard to take when you look at the size of their defence budget, but yeah. as a concept, I think it's one that, that is worth thinking through. Um, at the, we've got front left here and then here. So um, the gentleman here. Okay, thank you. My name's Alfreina. Um, look, uh, you described uh, ASEAN as fragile. Um, uh, I can only agree that it is. Uh, it uh, hasn't been particularly effective. I'm just wondering, um, particularly in view of the fact that uh, there are many countries, members of, uh, of ASEAN, that are experiencing particular difficulties, uh, e.g. Burma, uh, Thailand, uh, the Philippines, and so on. Um, do you see uh, a, a real risk that uh, China uh, will... Uh, uh, of a power will effectively take over uh, what is ASEAN, uh, and uh, uh, that, that's one part of my question. The other part is, uh, do you see ASEAN ever actually being able to recover sufficiently to begin to deal with its own internal problems? Well, certainly an issue at the moment, because there's a couple of ASEAN countries which are really wholly owned subsidiaries of China Inc. at the moment, and Cambodia is one of them, and you know, Laos is probably the other which given the consensual basis on which ASEAN policy making works or traditionally has worked, makes it almost impossible these days to get any ASEAN position of any consequence on anything at all that, um, that uh, you know, is a response, an effective response to um, this Chinese hegemonic creep that we've been talking about. And that's particularly the case, of course, on the South China Sea issues where this... Um, this code of conduct, you know, which is being talked about as ASEAN's contribution to stabilising, you know, has become steadily more denuded of any content at all under that Chinese pressure. So it's a very important issue for ASEAN. Um, cooler and wiser heads, of whom there are still many within the ASEAN system, are deeply troubled about it. They're looking for various process solutions, mini-lateralism, they call it, or, you know, reduced reliance on the consensus principle in order to get stuff done, but getting there will be, be very tricky. Everything really, I think, depends on Indonesian uh, leadership. That's absolutely crucial. And at the moment, that hasn't gone missing completely, but it's not there with anything like the, the strength that I would like to see. I mean, uh, Jokowi is very much an internally focused uh, Indonesian leader. Uh, the foreign ministry doesn't have anything like the visibility or strength or leadership drive that it had under Alatas, of course, but also very recently under Martin Aplagawa, um, who was a highly intelligent, highly focused um, you know, foreign minister. Um, Singaporeans are, are always you know, pretty crucial to getting things done, but at the end of the day, they are the size they are, and the clout they have as a consequence is fairly minimal. It's always depended on a a core group of you know, funda you know, like-minded countries within ASEAN to sort of drive the rest. And, um, well, now, you know, Thailand's gone missing with its aut autocracy. Philippines, is, which was never a strong voice, but it was usually a voice for decency on human rights democracy issues, has now gone completely AWOL with um, Duterte. Um, you know, Vietnam is a hope for the future, but Vietnam's got still this... You know, lingering attachment to you know Communist Party leadership with all the 
traditional limitations of you know, effectiveness and responsiveness and sensitivity associated with that. So it, it's, it's a real problem uh, for ASEAN. And um, ASEAN, like the European Union, and maybe even more obviously than the European Union, has been a superb conflict prevention mechanism. It's very existence since its creation. People have just forgotten the extent to which year after year after year there were multiple conflicts, across border conflicts, going on within those uh, Southeast Asian countries. So don't let's get too pessimistic about it because I don't think there's any mood to walk away from that. And I think there are still plenty of counter pressures that are applicable when, um, you know, when there's any kind of a dispute starts to bubble up between ASEAN members, the collective will to deal with that, to defuse it, is still pretty strong, but it's still punching way, way below its weight. And, um, and letting something like the Rohingya issue just go um, in Myanmar is really pretty disgraceful, I think. Um, it was always, it was always a, a difficult call to let, uh, you know, to bring Myanmar in. And I, one of the things I was most vociferous about in my foreign policy days was trying to persuade ASEAN not to let Myanmar in until they you know, became an effective uh, democracy because they'd lose all leverage if they gave that away. Well, we thought we were getting there with Suu Kyi, but uh, that's proved to be a bit of a busted flush, I'm afraid. So it's, it's, a, real, it's a real problem in ASEAN at the moment. But there's still enough voices that I see and hear within ASEAN that are conscious of the absolute critical need to get this act together and for Indonesia to play that role that um, I'm not totally pessimistic. Yeah, and, and I'll just echo that. And the, 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 I guess the point I'd make is that in, in a region in which great power conflict is increasingly dominant, the value of ASEAN to its members goes up. Yeah. So I think that's a, yeah. there's a real incentive for, it, for them to get their act together. But it'll, I think it'll take a little time. Anyway, sorry, the gentleman there. Um, thank you. Malcolm Kennedy from Monash. Um, I'd like to congratulate you on a, a very instructive discussion today and your real value as a politician and a foreign minister. I only wish you were running the current schmozzle in Canberra. <laughs> Just kick ass, kick ass and kick some more. But anyhow, I want to make a comment and ask two questions. The first comment is I agree entirely with the pushback in, in the South China Sea, but I also think there could be far better and more sophisticated engagement with the Chinese over the whole issue of that area. I've seen nothing from either side that's really intelligible. Um, the other question is um, planning. It seems to me in all the books I read about Australia and government and so on, um, the crucial plan in this country is four years if we can get up to the next tax payment. And that seems endemic in our government, I know, the terms of policy. How would you see longer-term planning in most of the ministries in Canberra? We have a perfectly good model, which I read every five years, which is produced by China. Um, a hell of a lot of good stuff isn't in there, but anyhow... Well, Would you like to comment on the need for longer-term planning in all our ministries and especially those that engage international relations? Neo-Stalinism for <laughs> Well, in terms of the, um, the, the, the pushback issue um, against China, I think that you know, there are risks associated in the sort of military exercise of the kind I was talking about. And, you know, one of the 
time-honoured things we learnt to worry about is small tactical incidents sort of escalating out of control and you've got to be very careful about doing anything provocative. But my judgment about that is that China is so keen to avoid anything in the nature of a major conflict in the region uh, that cooler heads would unquestionably prevail in that kind of situation. And the sort of pushback that I think is really critical for China to hear is in the sequence of meetings that we've just been through, the, uh, the ASEAN Regional Forum meeting, the APEC meeting, the East Asian Summit above all, because you've got all the leaders you know, represented there, an open-ended brief to talk about both economic and security issues. And my God, what a wasted opportunity um, that has been uh, this year, um, because... Not a word seems to have been uttered by anyone that could possibly you know, disturb anyone's equilibrium about anything, whether on democracy, on human rights, on you know, security overreach or anything else. And um, my experience is that you know, China does listen to, to those kind of voices when they're articulated and when they're not articulated and when people are just in kowtow mode, I mean, China will just suck every last bit of gratification out of that. And, but, you know, you start giving the counter-narrative, and both publicly and privately, a uh, pretty strong description of you know, how important it is in everybody's interest that there be observation of rule-based order and how damaging it is to the country's reputation, credibility, when they are visibly seen to tear that up. But you just give those messages. I mean, it might sound pretty limp to some of you to think that there's any utility in, in language, but it's, it's incredibly important, and its absence is even more important. The absence of that is seen as a licence to just you know, go on grabbing. I'm afraid I can't be nearly as kind to you on the subject of the latter part of your question about you know, planning. I mean, of course, having a sense of strategic direction, of course, having priorities, of course, thinking about the resources that you need to be able to credibly advance those priorities, of course, putting in place the consultative, whether you're talking about social policy, whether you're talking about economic policy, whether you're talking about international policy, of course that should be second nature rather than just ad hocery and reactive responses to the current pressures of the moment. If that's what you mean by, by planning, yeah, I'm all for it. If you mean five-year plans and ten-year plans and all the rest of the apparatus that went with it, I think that really was a little bit last century. <laughs> all right. Um, then almost right in the middle of the room, yep. You said if we could just get a mic to get passed across the middle. Yeah, the reputational, the, the value of reputational cost on China, I think, is badly under-recognised. So, yes, go ahead. Thank you, Nick. They, they take oh. that seriously. Yep. Thank you, Nick. What is it about the American society that they don't get in their American governments that just can't confront their society and tell them the truth? And the other question is... So I, I'm just not getting that. So I think he's referring to the Clinton, the remarks. The Bill, Clinton, Clinton, the Bill Clinton conversation oh, yeah, 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 yeah. back to 2002, which well, was a, a fascinating conversa conversation. What is it about the American society that, that they don't get, that you know, they are steadily declining and have been for about 25, 30 years? And what is it about the, the American governments that they don't get to confront their people and to tell them so? And secondly, what is it about us as a nation that we don't get to tell our friends that their time has come and we seem to be just cozying up to them year after year after year and not facing reality that we're in the Asian region? It's the diplomatic equivalent of you've had enough. You've had enough. <laughs> well, well there's, you know, there's plenty of people that do get it. 
in the United States. I mean, it's a very, very sophisticated understanding, East Coast, West Coast, Chicago, not sure about the rest. Um, there's some very sophisticated people in, you know, they don't, didn't always make that sophistication too manifest during the Democratic campaign last time, but you know, there was that sort of understanding about the shape of the world and the need for a degree of modesty, and Obama articulated that very well, a degree of modesty in terms of, except on the TPP issue where he got completely wrong, but you know, on, on so many other issues, on nuclear stuff and so on, it, you know, it was thoughtful, it was intelligent, it was credible. Uh, you know, and, and you know, it wasn't Trump that won the majority of votes. I mean, you know, he was three million short. Um, he just got them in the, in the places we know. Uh, I don't know. It's just this combination of a degree of arrogance, I think, unquestionably, by policymakers in previous governments right across the West over the last 20 years, a degree of just not listening hard enough to what people are telling them. Not just about globalisation, because that's something that's proper, I think, for governments to push back against, because the, the economic arguments are overwhelming for advantage flowing from that. But the, you know, the technological revolution, the loss of jobs, and the genuine uncertainty that really exists out there now as to whether those jobs are ever going to be recreated. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm a congenital optimist, Malcolm Turnbull style, exciting times, and every previous industrial revolution, agricultural industrial computer has generated new jobs uh, to match the loss of the old ones, albeit in different places and with, with dislocation effect. But I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure that that logic holds anymore. You know, with AI and the prospect of you know, driverless cars, three and a half million jobs going in a flash, you know, not now but 20 years' time in the Australian economy alone, where, where are the new jobs coming from? Don't we have to start focusing a lot more on possible completely new alternative strategies like universal basic income and so on that will recognise that reality or at least be seen to be listening? So I think the big problem in the United States... You know, and really the loss of credibility for parties of centre-left, centre-right, which have enabled the fringe dwellers to, to prosper. The big problem is, I think, failing to listen to those concerns. That combination of economic anxiety, primarily driven by technological change, digitalisation, and um, you know, combined with the security anxiety, the cultural anxiety, it tends to get mixed up with it. And I think you know, that's, that's what's been driving the politics of all our countries in recent years and driving the, the depressing apparent decline in the quality of politics. That hasn't been so much a disaffection for, for you know, the international policy as such. I mean, international policy doesn't feature all that largely in the way people think about their choices of who's governing them. So, um, you know, getting Americans to think about their relationship vis-a-vis -vis China is, I think, a matter of getting the domestic politics right in the first instance, getting people elected to government who are listening to what the community is telling them and being seen to wrestle seriously with the policy issues, and then just you know, letting nature take its course in terms of effective management of international relations, but recognising that there's far more to be achieved through a cooperative approach to this than there is through the confrontational bullying sort of stuff that, uh, that Trump has made his own... I don't know, it's not a very good answer, but I don't know what you need to do to persuade Americans to come out, you know, sort of publicly with that sort of statement that Clinton was prepared to make privately. 
But, I mean, above all, it's a matter if you get the domestic politics right, you can be much more sort of honest, I think, about articulating these larger global issues than you are if you're struggling for survival with a, with a community that just doesn't you know, believe in you. And I, mean, I think that's been the problem with successive American government. Yeah, I mean, I think Obama's dilemma was exactly, you know, he, he was trying to manage all of this, but could not manage the domestic politics of that. I think that was, well, that was one of the fundamental... Yeah, once he lost the domestic politics, he was unable to so. do anything serious about nuclear weapons, for example, even though he was both intellectually and emotionally engaged with finding a solution to the problem of nuclear weapons, more so than anyone in world history at that leadership level. But he just found it completely unable to deliver because he didn't have enough credibility. Right, well, we've got about ten people lined up and yeah, we've I'm got sorry. about nine well, minutes. So some of quick. you are going to miss out. There is a, lo- there is a list. Um, next one is back here. Um, but if everyone could keep their questions really short and direct... And my hopefully... answer short. Yes, well, I know. Uh, Hi, Rebecca Strading from La Trobe. Thank you for that uh, fascinating presentation. Uh, My question is actually about the responsibility to protect. Uh Uh, There's been, you know, some issues in implementation of that principle over the last 12, 13 years. Um, But I'm actually curious to know about um, how you think the future of the responsibility to protect, um, what, what that will look like, particularly considering, you know, the contestative normative order that comes around due to changing, you know, balance of power dynamics. Well, I've got a whole chapter on this in the book. And responsibility protectors, which I won't burden you with now, but, I mean, the responsibility protectors is basically this idea which we got the whole UN to sign up to in 2005, that mass atrocity crimes, genocide, other major crimes against humanity are not just a sovereign country's own business, they're everybody's business. I think um, the four benchmarks you need to weigh up the progress we've made on this. One is its acceptance as a normative principle, you know, and the answer to that is tick, yes, everybody now pays lip service to this principle in a way they weren't a decade or more ago, and that's an advance. Secondly, its impact as an institutional catalyst. Has it changed the way in which militaries organise themselves for potential interventions if it ever comes to that to stop genocide? Yes, it has. Civilian process, focal points within governments? Yes, a lot of that has happened. Thirdly, has it worked as a preventive mechanism um, and the whole point about preventive mechanisms, when they do work, nothing visibly happens, therefore nobody notices. Answer, yes, I think it has quite often. And take just one example in Africa, Burundi, which has been identical demographics to Rwanda next door, genocidal explosion waiting to happen over and over again, edge of a volcano, but every time it's got close to the edge of the volcano, security council has met, responsibility protectors have been invoked and huge amount of diplomatic effort has been put into defusing. Fourth benchmark, effective reaction mechanism when the shit really does hit the fan and horrible things are happening. A couple of small successes back in 2011, Cote d'Ivoire, the first stages of Libya. Since then, two or three real disasters. Syria, absolute catastrophe. And now I think you have to put um, Sri Lanka, certainly also in that category back in 2009. And uh, now we have to say the Rohingya. Uh, which is, you know, as was said, a textbook case of ethnic cleansing. (sighs) Am I optimistic that we can hold this one together and build on that normative consensus, which does notionally there exist? Yes, I basically am, because, quoting Henry Kissinger again, as I want to do on occasions, um, reciprocally for him quoting me, uh, he once famously said 
back in the days when the Khmer Rouge came to power in Cambodia. He once famously and horribly said to the Thai foreign minister of the day, you can tell these Cambodians that we'll be their friends. They're murderous thugs, but we won't let that stand in the way. I don't honestly think any serious, important policymaker anywhere in the world would feel able to use that sort of language now. You know, Syria went off the rails because other things had gone off the rails. The Rohingya thing has gone off the rails because people have been able to point, as the Sri Lankans did, to you know, a terrorist group uh, causing havoc, and it's got mixed up with those sorts of security issues and the Suchi legacy of emotional you know, approbation still sort of lingers. People can't quite believe that she's as, you know, the disaster that she in fact has been on this issue and has always been, frankly, my knowledge on issues of minority and Muslim concern. But, you know, I do think the, 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 the principle of responsibility has a tenacious hold now on international consciousness and as such there's plenty on which to build. And China's been not bad on this stuff. Um, it's an important point to make. You would think they'd be horrible because of their you know, traditional distaste for internal affairs. Anyway, I promise to give short answers and I'm preaching okay. my uh, promise, so I'll shut up. The good there, yeah, third in on the full third row back there. Yep. Professor Evans, what's your view of senior political figures, former senior political figures such as yourself, accepting foreign funds or funds from individuals, from authoritarian governments to found and head pro-partisan institutes in Australian universities. Would you be so tempted? Is it a good thing? Would you be able to rationalise why you might accept? Well, I've, I've never been resistant to accepting government money for NGO activity. Uh, International Crisis Group. Um, you know, we had $17 million a year budget and we raised money from a number of different governments as well as foundations and individuals and so on. The critical thing, the absolutely critical thing is you must not let the source of your money govern the nature of the research you do, the nature of the advocacy you do, the nature of the writing you produce, and if what you do offends one of your donors and puts at risk that money supply in the future... That's what you've got to do. You've got to be absolutely prepared to do it. And that's the same principle that applies, I think, for um, you know, university research centres and so on. Many universities have benefited from government funding for all sorts of things around the place. Um, and provided there are no strings attached, either formally or informally, and we have to be particularly careful about informal strings these days, then I don't see anything inherently colourable about that. But, no, I mean, universities and think tanks and NGOs, I mean, all their reputations depend on their independence, they depend on their credibility, and uh, you must be very, very careful these days, particularly not to put that credibility at risk. I'm afraid we are wildly over time. There is a long list of people who can't come. But my, my advice to you is, like if you want to ask Gareth a question, all you have to do is buy the book, yeah. and he'll be signing them in the foyer afterwards, and then you can bend his ear, at least for a little while, but I have to scurry him away. Mm-hmm. We also have to finish on time because, of course, the soccer game slash football game it will start, and we need to give you adequate time to get in front of a screen. Um, so it, it remains only for me to um, close the proceedings off 
um, by a series of thanks. Um, first and most importantly, I'd like to thank Gareth Evans for taking the time out of what is a very busy schedule um, at, at a busy time of year for chancellors. Uh, and we're extremely grateful for your time, your energy and enthusiasm. I remember the first time I actually met you face-to-face was when you gave a lecture at the London School of Economics. I was a PhD student, and my supervisor, Fred Halliday, was hosting you, and they had to physically take you off the stage because you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't stop. So um, I don't want that to happen again, um, but I think you've got a sense of the flavour. <laughs> But you have a real sense of, of Garrett's experience and flavour and energy. Um, a I'd big, like a bit of a backhander, that one. But no, anyway. no, it was not. <laughs> it was, it was, I, I, I remember move on. thinking, when's he Move on, stop? come on, move on. There um, we go. <laughs> now, I would like to thank my team, the Trovasia, um, who are always um, steadfast supporters of everything we do and make, um, make my job extraordinarily easy, make me look a lot better than I deserve to. Um, always great to be here at the State Library of Victoria. We hold many events here um, and they're an absolute pleasure to work with. If you're ever looking to hold events in the city, we cannot recommend them enough. Finally, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time um, to, to spend your evening with us on an evening when there's plenty of other uh, 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 things attracting your attention. Um, so thanks for coming. By being here, you are now. You will receive an email from us letting you know that you're now on our mailing list. You will have a way to opt out. Um, there'll be a recording of this evening's event, so if, if there are people, if you A, want to listen to it again, or B, people who weren't able to be here, you can. Uh, but thank you, and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.